Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash! Exclusive! Here's front page news! You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline. Welcome to Byline. It's United Ireland's additional podcast series that talks to really great journalists doing very interesting work about their careers and the stories that matter. On this episode, we are joined by Peter Gagan. Now, you might remember Peter from a previous episode of United Ireland, where we were discussing uh, what is the topic of his latest book. Uh, That book is called Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics. We previously spoke to Peter about uh, money and the Brexit referendum and the DUP and that tangled web. Peter is a really, really fantastic uh, journalist. Um, He has worked for Channel 4 Dispatches. He's written for the Irish Times, New York Times, The Guardian, uh, the London Review of Books. He um, currently um, works in investigations for open democracy. His uh, first book, uh, The People's Referendum, Why Scotland Will Never Be the Same Again, uh, was about just that, uh, the Scottish referendum and and all the different kind of uh, spinning off topics around that. His current one, Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, uh, published this month, August, um, is about the Brexit referendum, um, the money that flowed into that, and also uh, the dark money, etc., um, that kind of run intersects with with. UK, British politics, um, elections and referenda and so on. Um, Really, really, really fascinating guy. Very, very smart. He's reported uh, all over the world, um, notably in in the Balkans and also in Mongolia, which uh, you'll hear uh, him speak about on on this episode. So this is a conversation about his book, about his career, about why he often finds himself um, at the centre of... uh, what he describes as naughty kind of stories, the messy, complex uh, types of stories where uh, journalists have to pull an awful lot of threads um, and often not to find answers, but just to follow them and see um, what the important questions are and the things that we should be focused on. At a time where the news cycle is almost overwhelming, really, to be honest, and moves at a breakneck speed, where we're constantly looking at uh, an awful lot of the stuff that's being thrown up in the, not even the 24-hour news cycle, in the hourly news cycle, and trying to figure out what the future holds. Peter is one of those journalists that doesn't just look at the present and the future, but goes back, goes back to examine the unfinished business, uh, goes back to ask questions that a lot of people want to move on from, um, and to find answers uh, that can be very uncomfortable as we uh, survey uh, an ever-evolving Europe, EU, um, and uh, Britain that seems to be um, reluctant to confront its very recent past, uh, not to mention its 
much older one. So this is a chat with Peter Gagan. Uh, do buy his book, just not from Amazon, uh, if you can. And uh, enjoy this episode of Byline. Peter, welcome again to United Ireland. Una, thanks very much for having me on the show. Delighted to be back. Listen, um, Byline is all about kind of delving into people's uh, journalistic careers, using their current work as as leverage to explore that, I suppose. But before we get to your latest book, which is obviously uh, much talked about, tell us a little bit about your work uh, from the get-go. When did you start out in journalism or was that where you started out? Well, I had a very circuitous uh, route into journalism, I must confess. My, my earliest journalistic dabblings were in secondary school in, in Longford, in St. Mel's uh, boy, uh, Boys Secondary School in Longford, where I used to produce a fanzine, uh, A4. Do you remember the old fanzines? It would be kind of an A4 sheet photo I do indeed. and, and uh, staples. Occasionally, we might have a double issue that was, was, uh, was kind of two pages, which would require staples. But generally, it was just one A4 sheet folded over, writing uh, fictitious interviews with local politicians and writing <laughs> on music. So that was where my, my journalism started. And through college, I used to write for college newspapers and things like that. And I actually freelanced quite a, a bit. But formally getting into journalism, actually, I was quite, I was reasonably well advanced. I ended up studying, I ended up doing a PhD in Edinburgh in human geography, which I realized in retrospect actually was kind of, in many ways, um, like a kind of primer for journalism. But when I was doing that, I was freelancing a lot when I was living in Scotland. And I took, I worked briefly as a postdoc in the University of Ulster. I was based in Derry. And when I was there, I used to write a lot for arts magazines in Northern Ireland. And after about three or four months, my contract was coming to an end. And there was one arts website I wrote for called Culture Northern Ireland that was run by, basically paid for by the, by the state. And they, I was out for a pint with them one evening and the guys there and I said, do you, do you want a job here? We've, we've just got a vacancy. Um, so I said, I, I was stuck for, I was, I was leaving my job and do you want to come and work for us? And I went, oh, okay, actually, do you know what? Maybe I will. I, I've always had journalistic inclinations and that was about 12 years ago. And I've had a long security journey uh, since then. I ended up working for Channel 4. I ended up on the Channel 4 Dispatches training scheme, which is all really about investigative journalism and for television. Uh, and from there, I, my kind of career went more and more into investigations. But I've always been interested in possibly a little bit of the PhD background. I've always been interested in research and trying to understand what's going on behind the headlines and behind the scenes. And nowadays, I'm the investigations editor for the global website, uh, opendemocracy.net. And where were you right before Open Democracy? When did you join there? Well, in many ways, and I won't preempt too much of our talk about our, about the book, but really, um, before I joined Open Democracy, I was back freelancing, actually. I freelanced for a long time from Scotland for a lot of news outlets. In Ireland, mainly the Irish Times, but also for international news outlets like the New York Times, um, Political, most of the continental European press, and, and quite a lot of the British press, The Guardian and others. And 
interestingly, I was that's what basically what I was doing in early 2017 when I got a phone call from Adam Ramsey, who's at Open Democracy, who was interested in the Democratic Unionist Party and the money they'd spent on the Brexit referendum, which just so happened to be something I was researching at the time as well. And I won't preempt too much about it, but that's, that was kind of how I ended up in this job three and a half years later. It was really one story that kind of took off looking at the... It started off as one story looking at the Democratic Unionist Party and their referendum spending and really became a long-running project looking at the role of money in British politics that's kind of still continuing today. Hmm. We'll get to that in a bit. Um, I'm interested in some of the work that you did kind of around Europe as well. Um, Tell us a little bit about your reporting work in various parts of the world outside of the North or um, the UK. Yeah, I've always, I've, I've always enjoyed and tried as much as I can to report from other parts of the world. Um, I made a documentary from Mongolia for BBC Radio 4 in which I tried to understand how Mongolia had changed after communism and after a, a huge mineral boom by learning how to wrestle. Um, I lived with wrestlers for a while, and it was, it was called "Wrestling with Wrestling with the Future" is the title they gave it. I, and it was it was trying to kind of get a hands on, on Mongolia. So I I kind of always been interested in trying to understand uh, kind of what's happening in other parts of the world. But one region in particular I've always had huge interest in and affection for is the Balkans. And I think it's probably because I'd worked in an academic capacity in Northern Ireland on things that were all about post-conflict societies. You know, my first proper job in in Derry was working on an interface between the Fountain, which if if listeners know Derry, is quite a small, a very small loyalist housing estate on on the West Bank of Derry, just abutting Derry's walls, and uh, Bishop Street, which is the the nationalist area on the other side of the peace line from the Fountain. And I'd always been, and that was quite a challenging job in many respects. And it kind of gave me, I felt like a, a bit of a front row seat to understand the difficulties of societies coming out of conflict. And so that's the thing, one of the things that drew me to the Balkans. So I found myself traveling a lot to the Balkans, spending quite a lot of time in the Balkans, reporting particularly from Bosnia and Kosovo um, and trying to understand what these societies are like now and the kind of fractures and the histories of them. And I found that I've always found that really, really interesting um, to try and kind of to get a handle on what's going on beyond just our borders, I think it's really easy, especially as a journalist, to become very fixated on what's just happening in front of you. And I'm as guilty of it as any other journalist. You know, you're, you're dealing day to day with what are the big political stories of the day, wherever you are. Um, but I kind of found that it was really, really, I found it really useful to be able to get a chance just to pull the lens back a bit and to try and understand what was going on somewhere else. So post-conflict, complicated, um, circuitous stories seem to be the ones that that you're um, drawn to. There's a certain, like we're reading your work, there's a certain amount of, uh, it seems to me that you're drawn to kind of the messiness uh, of, of a certain issue and trying to tease that out. Do you think that's true? Like what kind of stories are you drawn to and why? I think that's true. I think there is. I'm, I'm interested in human complexity, I think, in, very, in many different ways. So in my investigative work, and I would often be, you know, kind of trying to drill down into an issue. A lot of the investigations I've done, some, some around TV have been around, you know, kind of like just slightly naughty issues, things like, you know, political financing, things like, you know, like government policies that are quite naughty. And I, I quite enjoy that aspect of it. Yeah, so I've always been interested, I think, in the kind of messiness of kind of human kind of interactions and experiences without being too kind of philosophical and being too pretentious about it. So I do a lot of investigative work that's really kind of 
attacking kind of naughty problems, things like you know campaign financing, you know, things like naughty government policies, trying to understand them, how they work, but also on a human level as well. Like I wrote the previous book to this was called The People's Referendum, and it was all about the Scottish independence referendum, which I covered mm. extensively. And what I tried to do with that book was to try and step outside the politics, which everyone was focusing on. There was a lot of books as well after the referendum that were all about the kind of day-to-day politics of Scottish independence and, and issues around. And I tried to kind of take a slightly different tack and to understand what it meant for individual people and what it meant in a kind of wider context. So that book was really a series of what were really essentially travel essays. You know, I wrote an essay about the, the last communist elected representative in Britain who was a man called Willie Clark, who'd been a communist member of, for the local council in Fife for about 40 years. And he still was until kind of 2016 when the referendum happened. Uh, he died last year, actually. I was at his funeral not too long ago. Um, I also kind of wrote about things like the history of the Irish in Scotland. I tried to take a slightly different approach to it, to look at an issue slightly side on. And that book also included a chapter from the Serb Republic, uh, Republic of Serbska in Bosnia and Catalonia as well, to try and see how does what I was seeing in Scotland what does it look like compared to what's happening in other parts of the world? But again, I was, it was less about trying to have some sort of huge analytical frame, but more about trying to tease out people's human experiences of something like this. I, I love reading good quality, long form journalism. And I don't, I'm always, that's why I try to do sometimes if I can in my books is to try and bring some of that sensibility to bear on some of the topics that I'm interested in. Mm. Um, open democracy for people who aren't familiar with this. Um, what is the kind of the mission of, of that outlet, and how do you think it reflects changes that have occurred in journalism over the past ten or so years? Um, I find open democracy is a news outlet based. We're based in London, but we have actually got people in all over the world in many respects. We're not a large organization, but we've actually got quite a surprisingly large kind of global footprint. And the kind of tagline for open democracy is free thinking for the world, which I think is quite is quite an interesting one. And the idea of the kind of website, it's about 20 years old now, was to be a space for plurality, to have a plural voice uh, in the kind of, it emerged in the early days almost of the internet where newspapers were still there was no such thing as digital first. Newspapers were still focused primarily on print. And there was a sense in which the internet was a space in which multiple voices could coexist. Open democracy, I think it's fair to say, has actually changed as the internet has changed. You know, there's much more space for plural voices or for, um, for a cacophony of voices anyway online than there was 20 years ago. But there's certainly, I think, a lot less space for rigorous discussion and also for kind of the kind of work that I do, kind of investigative work. So Open Democracy's focus is in trying to kind of shine a light on specific issues and specific areas while also providing a space for kind of really incisive commentary. We've got a series of, I think, really interesting projects. The project I work on is called Dark Money, and it's all about kind of money and politics. But one of our bigger strands as well is called Tracking the Backlash, and it's all about the backlash against women's LGBTQI and reproductive rights kind of around the world. Um, and that project has about a staff of almost, I think, about a dozen at this stage, based in countries around the world. There's a lot of in-depth investigations. For example, uh, I recently worked on a story that was about a website in Armenia that was funded by the U.S. State Department that was spreading COVID misinformation. It was, you know, pandemic sort of stuff, suggesting that COVID was had been produced in a lab and it wasn't a, it, what wouldn't harm you and vitamin C can cure it and all that sort of kind of 
content. And so it's quite, it's a really interesting, I find a fascinating place to work because I've got colleagues that are kind of spread around the world. We're doing very, almost quite different things, but with lots of analogous uh, experiences and kind of goals behind it. Like a big thing that we're trying, we were always trying to do is to focus on issues that we feel don't get as much coverage in uh, other media and to make sure the voices that don't get as much coverage in other media kind of get uh, get a voice. So it's, it's about trying to be more democratic in that respect. In a, in a world in which, in a media ecosystem in which money will often buy you um, a much kind of louder voice, we're trying to uh, kind of provide a voice for those who don't have the means to to, to, to do so. It's interesting, isn't it? What the um, I, how would you describe it? It's kind of the focus um, of of a, of an outlet like Open Democracy that um, when you take away, you know, let's say a a, a, a geographical beat like a country, um, and instead think about you know what ethos uh does does an outlet have um that kind of allows it to cover uh stories or investigate things with the different kind of criteria i suppose you kind of you do end up with a different kind of journalism don't you yeah i think that's exactly it and I, i find that really interesting if you look at it less from just what's within the boundaries of of my beat or of my country, you do you 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 can't help it. And so I found it quite interesting because a lot of my colleagues have come from less conventional routes into journalism. Um, I did as well, but I've actually spent over a decade working in very traditional journalism environments. You know, I was trained by Channel Four. You know, I've, I have that background, so I still it's interesting. So, and I will I will look at the world in some ways still in that very traditional journalistic way. And which is actually quite bordered, where, whereas I would actually often notice my colleagues have a capacity to do that, to kind of expand it and to look at an issue. And I found, what, and it's been interesting for the work I do, because I'm starting to see connections internationally much more so than I, I would have done before. I would have often mm. needed just to look internally. And I think that we all know that we live in an increasingly interconnected world. That's not a surprising thing to say. And in many ways, the world for, for the rich and the powerful has always been global and connected. And it, but actually, in journalistically, it's, I find that really fruitful because you can actually start to see, oh, this, you know, it could just even just be as simple as just a, an individual that you're interested in that's come into your frame of reference. And I would talk to colleagues, you know, and they go, actually, well, that person's not really, you know, this is who this person is in, in my context. We also have a very vibrant uh, Russian language section, ODR, which is kind of about the whole post-Soviet space. And that does a lot of really, really strong um, investigative and human rights work. You know, it will cover stories that just don't really get covered, especially in English. Things like, you know, like the cotton industry in Uzbekistan, where there's huge, huge human rights, ab- rights abuses. And, you know, as newspapers have cut away their foreign sections more and more, I think we can all see that. There's far less foreign coverage than there used to be. I think having an organisation like Open Democracy that will cherry pick certain issues on a global uh, globally is really really exciting. Actually, I find I've found it a really fascinating place to work. Mm. So, speaking of fascinating, uh, your latest book, Democracy for Sale: Dark Money and Dirty Politics, has been all over um, uh, media in the in certainly in Britain and Ireland in the last few days. Um, this is a, a the topic or the or the launching launch off point, I suppose, uh, of all of this was something that we were discussing when you were last on the podcast. These stories that you were unearthing um, around 
the DUP, Brexit, dark money, and all of that kind of mess, which momentarily kind of emerged uh, due, due uh, you know, a, a lot in part to, to your own work and your colleagues' work. And then, you know, like a lot of these things that kind of dissipate, but are always uh, cresting a little bit um, above the, the surface of the water. Um, this has been a, a fairly long process for you, I would imagine, getting this book published. Um, can you give us a little recap on the genesis of, of those stories? I remember you were talking about this, you know, this rap that you were seeing on a particular newspaper on the train. Yeah. So how this this whole uh, kind of this book came out of it, yeah, it, it has been in many ways quite a long period in gestation. It was it was quite a short period in writing this book. Actually, I wrote it in a couple of months, but the period of research had what really probably was, I'd say, about three years. But it started off actually about two days before the Brexit referendum, and I was in Sunderland. I actually worked for the Irish Times. And it was in the run-up to the Brexit referendum, and I was sent down to from Glasgow to Sunderland to write a, a feature about what was what was the mood of the place and those kind of colourful pieces that reporters write before big elections. Um, and so I went around Sunderland. I was chatting to people about Brexit, and they were very in favour of, of leaving the European Union. I found it quite it was an interesting, quite an eye-opening trip, anyway. But I was leaving Sunderland, and I got on the sur- suburban rail, and there was a copy of. The Metro, the free newspaper that, that circulates. And there was a big advert on it and it just said, uh, take back control, which was the vote leave, the big leave campaign message. And I looked at the back of the newspaper and it had the DUP's kind of lion head crest logo and the imprint paid for by the Democratic Unionist Party. And I thought, that's quite interesting. Why is the DUP spending money like this on a big, expensive-looking ad. How, how odd. And so that kind of piqued my interest, and I put the kind of newspaper in my bag and kind of got on with writing my copy, but kind of kept it in my mind. And I started, because one of the reasons I was interested in it was I'd worked in Northern Ireland, and I'd always been aware that Northern Ireland had donor secrecy laws, that political donations in Northern Ireland were secret and they weren't published, which was one of those things as a journalist is interesting but not newsworthy unless there's an example of it actually being used. And normally it had never been used that kind of loophole had never been used because in a general election in Britain, it's separation of 650 constituencies. And if you were to spend money in Northern Ireland, Labour and the Tories and Lib Dems don't run in Northern Ireland. There's no value for you in pumping money into Northern Ireland. But in a referendum, the whole of the United Kingdom was just one constituency. So you actually could spend money through a Northern Irish party anywhere you wanted in Britain. So that got me thinking, I wonder what's happened here. I wonder has somebody kind of taken advantage of these donor secrecy laws? And, but I did kind of forget about it. The referendum took place. It was a crazy time afterwards. You know, that summer was full of post-Brexit kind of come down, really. Um, but I kind of kept it on the back burner. I kept kind of being interested in it. I was talking to people to see if I could find some more information. Um, Aaron Banks, the Brexit donor, in his book had said that the DUP had offered for him to spend money through the DUP, but they'd want to cut, and he'd said no. And that kind of got a bit of press. I thought, that's interesting. But anyway, long and short of it was, Adam Ramsey at Open Democracy in February 2017 rang me and he said, look, Peter, I'm interested in this DUP money for Brexit and I've, I've heard you are too. And what had happened was during the referendum campaign, Adam had been in Edinburgh and he'd noticed lots of people out with vote leave paraphernalia, placards and posters and stuff, which there wasn't much of in Scotland at the time. So he was quite interested in it. But he also noticed that all of their placards had the same imprint as well, paid for by uh, the Democratic Unionist Party. 
So two of us started looking into it together and we started doing some work and we ended up publishing this story. We were able to say that the DEP had spent at least a quarter million pounds on their Brexit campaign, which was a huge sum for an ordinary Irish politics. In the Stormont election a few months earlier, the DEP had spent about 50 grand, I think. So this was a huge, huge spend. Um, and we published our story and it came out just as the renewable heating incentive scandal was raging in Northern Ireland, if listeners remember. This was kind of spring of 2017, what was called cash for ash. Mm. Farmers have been paid and other companies getting huge sums of money for burning wood pellets. And it was a huge scandal and basically caused the collapse of the devolved assembly. And in the run-up to this, there was a snap election. And in the run-up to the snap election, our story appeared. So it really did capture the kind of the mood of Northern Ireland at the time. And it became a really big story. It was discussed on television in Northern Ireland. And in the context of this, it kind of became a big deal. And what's interesting is, had it been another political moment, the DEP could have just said, we're not talking about this, forget about it. And under Northern Irish donor secrecy law, it would have died there. My book probably never would have been written if this hadn't been this particular political moment. But because the DEP was under so much pressure over its finances really because of cash for ash the dp came out and said we we got a donation it was four hundred and thirty-five thousand pounds and it was from a group called the constitutional research council we're not saying any more about it that's it so this was great because we actually then had some information which would have been secret was very interesting and the hope i think the dp hope was that that would be the end of the story but it wasn't because myself and adam in particular started really going after this thing called the constitutional research council which sounds really grand. It sounds like some august organisation that probably has a big building in Pall Mall in the centre of London, but it's not really at all. It's basically a kind of a legal fiction. It's not a. It's what's called an unincorporated association, which means it's just a couple of people together who've given themselves a name. It doesn't have any legal standing. It doesn't file accounts. It doesn't have an address. It doesn't have members. But the Constitutional Research Council did have one public face, a man called Richard Cook, who was a businessman and a former Scottish Conservative general election candidate who lived on the south side of Glasgow, the city I live in. And Mr. Cook, it turned out, myself and Adam quickly discovered, quite a colourful business history. Um, shortly after the DUP announced this man's name, we were able to discover that he'd gone into business with the former head of Saudi intelligence and a Danish man who'd been accused of gun running and spent uh, in India in the 1990s and had a string of really colourful uh, business uh, paths, including shipping uh, illegal waste tyres uh, to India and all sorts of other kind of uh, colourful expeditions. And I so like your use of colourful, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of, I'm kind of, you know, there's always, when I'm talking about this sort of stuff, there's a legal bit of my brain that yes, yes. lawyers' letters. So my book is chapter on verse on this. Uh, is, there's way more than just colourful in my book when it comes to the <laughs> characters. They're described in quite a bit of depth, actually. Uh, but it's all been lawyered, which is nice. Um but that really got the, that, that was the story that really started all of this. Um, and I started going, well, if this is one thing, if this is a Democratic Unionist Party's Brexit money, what happened to everybody else? What was going on with everybody else's spending? So I ended up looking at the Vote Leave campaign, doing a lot of work on that. And I think it's fair to say we contributed to the decision by the Electoral Commission to investigate Vote Leave, uh, which is Dominic Cummings' campaign. And Vote Leave were subsequently fined. Uh, for breaking electoral law. So basically the biggest campaign in British politics, the campaign that now runs the country because Vote Leave effectively is the British government. It's Boris Johnson, 
Michael Gove, Dominic Cummings and their acolytes, they broke the law. Uh, I looked at Aaron Banks, the Brexit donor. We did a lot of work on that, which ended up getting nominated for lots of prizes. So that was really interesting. And then I started looking more generally as well. I, I pulled the lens back even further and just started asking, well, how does political funding work in Britain? And more generally, how does influence work? How does lobbying, how does the online world as well. Like, so how is our politics influenced? So from this one little kind of expedition to uh, to Sunderland, this really large project, which is continuing to roll, came out. When we go back to the Brexit referendum, um, I, I mean, I'm kind of a bit obsessed with it because it's one of those things that, you know, it happened, um, the result is deemed legitimate and we know what, some so far of the, of the consequences uh, of that have been, which are seismic. I think it's fair to say, even though that kind of the word is overused. And all the time, if journalists are you know kind of looking back over the the wreckage of it. I suppose you know the likes of yourself and Carol Cadwallader and and a few other people, especially. Um. Yet I keep coming back to this. Um, maybe it's it's totally oversimplified point of view where if the law was broken, um, if there was money that couldn't couldn't necessarily be accounted for or at the very least was, you know, kind of behind these opaque layers of, of various uh, names of, you know, organisations that were kind of hiding the uh, or obscuring the, the actual source of the money. Can can it be conceived like can it be seen as a legitimate referendum um even even though the result has been accepted and everybody has quote unquote moved on even even though not not really in many ways um what do you think about that debate like sometimes it can feel that these things are not necessarily worth having because oh no we need to move on move on to the the next bit the next bit um and and it is has been a very head spinning time uh, in terms of um, the British government and so on, but is it fair? Is it you know? Is is it reasonable to keep returning to that and questioning the legitimacy of that referendum? Well, it's interesting. Like when I started doing this work initially and looking at stuff like like referendum spending, and this would have been kind of middle of 2017 on, so about a year after the Brexit referendum, I have friends who are political journalists who said to me, why are you bothering looking at this? Why do you care? What's the point of asking questions about something that happened a year ago? Which I found journalistically really odd. I was like, but that doesn't, just because it's in the past, you know, my job journalistically isn't to try and predict the future. Mm -hmm. It's to try and understand what's happened and to report on what's happened. So I felt like, and I felt that was quite almost, these are people, friends of mine who would be you know, in the lobby, the kind of Westminster political reporting system. And I kind of felt that was quite revealing of how that works and the kind of, which is one of the places where the kind of narrative of who cares about this, let's just move on, has kind of seeped through quite a lot. There's been a kind of sense of, well, look, whatever, look, we're now, that's the past, why are we talking about it? But I think, I, and I, I, I really would disagree with that. I think that's not, you know... If a referendum or if a large vote was involved, things like illegal spending and campaigning that you didn't know about, surely that's something that has to be brought out into public debate, discussion, and actually properly engaged with. And I find being in Britain really interesting because there's such a lax attitude to things like electoral law. So like if you look at America, in America, Michael Cohn went to prison for breaking electoral law. And 
others will and could do too. It's a serious offence. It's a federal, it's serious federal offence. In Britain, it's a maximum £20,000 fine and a slap on the wrist. Don't do it again. You will never see prison for it. There's actually much, ironically, the highest, uh, while the fine for breaking electoral law is just £20,000, for someone to divulge information about a political donation in Northern Ireland from before political donations were published, which was subsequent after the Brexit referendum in our work, has a maximum of six months in prison. So someone could go to prison for telling me about the Brexit, the DUP's donation, but whoever gave the money never could, no matter what they'd done. Mm. And I think that's something really concerning. And I find that, I do find, as possibly because I'm, an, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm an outsider in Britain, I find it really bizarre how almost nobody in, in all the political parties seems to care at all about this issue. It's not like, you know, it's a conservative government. The Labour Party were, in general, especially the hierarchy, didn't want to know about any of this work either. It was almost impossible even to get them to comment on, on, on stories that we were doing about this. And I do think there's a fair legitimacy question to ask there. And there's certainly a question to be asked about, you know, what what's going to happen, you know, what do we do afterwards? Okay, if, even if you just say, okay, the referendum has happened, where do we go now? But Quite the opposite has happened in Britain. All the problems that the referendum referendum revealed have actually just been exacerbated. The British general election in December, I wrote a piece for the New York Times about it, saying that it was the dirtiest election Britain had ever seen. And I think it was. There was it's the Conservatives on their own uh, official party Twitter account, they rebranded as a fact-checking account during a live yeah. debate. There was all sorts of like the pushing incredibly divisive narratives on social media with plausible deniability. It just went further and further. All you know, Subsequently, after the, the election, I showed how hundreds of thousands of pounds had been spent in ways that we knew nothing about through secretive uh, funding vehicles. All of the stuff that I uncovered in the Rexa referendum was there again in December. And is the kind of sense in which politicians seem to be actually want to, they don't want to do anything about it. And you can't but feel it's because they actually feel like they get some benefit out of it. Yeah. Or just kind of, um, you know, hopeful, blithe ignorance um, or exceptionalism, I guess, as well. I mean, I want to, Talk about the the referendum. Let's let's keep going back to to um to twenty sixteen because um obviously you know time moves on and and as you're saying you know some some journalists are like well why why would you bother uh, going after what what happened um a while ago let's look at what's happening now but if you were to bring in um you know a junior reporter under your wing uh, to to work on this. And you were laying out what was hap- what had happened in that referendum as you see it and, and as your investigations kind of have, have uncovered through on the money part, you know, how much money was spent, uh, et cetera. What threads in terms of um, maybe unusual or, or colourful or suspicious uh, money flooding into that referendum would you be identifying for that person to pull? You know, what would you be saying, like, these are the bits that are a bit ropey that we should be looking at? Well, there's a, there's a number of things I think are really interesting from the Brexit referendum, one of which is uh, it was the first campaign in British political history where really serious amounts of money was spent on social media and online. Previously, there just hadn't been the same amount. There'd been some spending, but there hadn't been the same amount. In the Brexit referendum, especially the Leave campaign, Dominic Cummings' campaign, spent a fortune. They 
So his campaign had a maximum spending limit of £7 million. They spent almost half of that on targeted social media advertising. And they bought all of that advertising, almost every penny of it, went to one company called Aggregate IQ, which Mm. was a tiny company based in British Columbia, based above an optician's in a small shopping mall in British Columbia, which had no internet footprint. At the time of the referendum, it had something like five followers on Twitter. It was, But it was um, run by two guys who had done a lot of work for SCL, which was the parent company of Cambridge Analytica. Um, at one stage, it was SCL Canada, they were called, had a phone, was, was Aggregate IQ. So there seems to have been like, there was a huge, huge overlap between these two companies. It's very hard to see where one started uh, and the other one stopped. And that they spent a phenomenal amount on targeted social advertising in the last couple of days of the campaign. So we've never seen before. And to this day, we've never understood how, where or how Dominic Cummings found this company. How, like, if, if you imagine you are, you're sitting there, you're running this campaign, this campaign that you spent the guts of your entire professional life working towards. Dominic Cummings has like, spent basically 20 years in neuroskeptic campaign groups in Britain. That was his background. He'd worked for a com- campaign group called Business for Sterling. He'd run that, which was a, an anti-euro group in the late 90s. He'd you know, worked for Michael Gove in government, again, a big euroskeptic. So this was a pinnacle of his political career to this point. And you're going to lay all of your eggs in this basket with this company that no one has heard of. Like, it doesn't make, you know, that's what is one of those kind of issues I've always had. Like, what was going on here? How did you find this company? Why did you decide to give them so much money? And they actually ended up being, they ended up working out of Vote Leave's office in London. It's in my book. I spoke to somebody, uh, a former Vote Leave staffer, who basically was telling me about how they had this little office where these Canadians came in. And they were just, they were basically running this entire social media operation. So that is one area which I still find myself, you know, going, what was going on there. What, what are your theories on that? I, I really, it's hard not, you know, if you look at back to that stage, it was when Cambridge Analytica was a big deal. You know, what was the kind of disgrace company it is now? And there's all sorts of, you know, queries about did Cambridge Analytica ever, were they any good at what they do? And I don't know. I, that's not my area. But quite clearly at that stage, Cambridge Analytica were the big noise on the scene. They'd been working for the Cruz campaign in the US presidential camp- election. They were about to start working for the Trump campaign. They were funded by Robert Mercer, the billionaire who spent so much dark money in American politics. Steve Bannon was on the board. You know, this is a big, big organization. And that's, you know, it's, they had a huge link with Aggregate IQ. So you're like, well, look, it's very hard to imagine there wasn't some sort of connection, or at least it, it'd be interesting to find, to find some definitive proof that there wasn't. Um, and it's interesting. I interviewed Steve Bannon for my book, and he talks about how he became interested in Brexit from like kind of 2013, 2014 on. And he actually talks about what a good guy, kind of brilliant guy is how he described Dominic Cummings. So you are, you can't but wonder well, what are, how in that context did someone decide to spend this huge amount of money with this company? Where did you find them? You know, where was, mm. What was the thing that made you go to them? There's, there's other interesting aspects to it, too. The Aaron Banks story, which is one I, I've written about at Lent, and Aaron Banks was this kind of, basically a spiv, a kind of insurance salesman with a finger in a lot of pies, kind of seemed to almost model himself a bit on a, 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 an un-PC version of Del Boy from Only Fools and Horses. And he rocks up in... 2014 uh, saying he's going to give a million pounds to Nigel Farage and UKIP. 
And then during the Brexit referendum, he emerges as big, huge spender. He becomes the biggest spender in any single political campaign in British election history. He's kind of all over the news, all over the television, this large in life, really bullish, really quite at times, really truculent, runs this campaign called Leave.eu that goes for the basis, hardest messaging. You know, it's it's anti-immigration. It's all about terrorism. It's, you know, it's really... It's really hard. They're really pushing the hardest buttons. And to this day, it's still really hard to figure out exactly where the money that Iron Banks spent on the referendum came from. His businesses are not that successful. It's, he was frequently described as being worth between 150 and 250 million pounds, which is a, was a, a, a figure from the Sunday Times rich list, which journalistically was one of those things that just gets repeated once. And yeah. And just goes, which is always I'm always fascinated in. I'm, I have a feeling you might be too. You know, you know these mm. these kind of a kind of factoid that just takes hold, but no one's ever figured out in the first place where it came from. Um, we can tell with some definitiveness that that's not what he's worth. A Bloomberg investigation said he was worth about twenty five million max, and that's twenty five million for all your assets. That's not liquid. So how someone like that could have spent you know three, four, five, six, seven, eight million on the Brexit referendum? isn't clear. There was an investigation into him by the National Crime Agency, um, which came up with the interesting conclusion that he that the money that he'd spent had was his own money, but but had been funneled through uh, a company in the Isle of Man. Uh, and in, under British electoral law, you're not allowed to accept donations from outside the UK and Ireland. And the Isle of Man isn't isn't doesn't qualify. It's a tax haven. But essentially what WASH, the National Crime Agency, found was the money had been rooted through a tax haven, which, again, it's very hard to know where money that's gone into a tax haven has come from. And the finding, which was kind of seen by, by Aaron Banks and Farage and others as a great vindication, basically actually was, was a really indictment of British democracy because it basically said it's okay to root money into politics through shady companies, or not, shady companies in British dependencies. Um, and I would expect to see more of that going on. So... So there's, there's that is another one of those uh, kind of question marks. Hmm. But I there's think also the, big, oh, go on. Yeah, but the big one is still the DUP's £435,000. Um, four years on, having written an entire book that still <laughs> mirrored, admired in secrecy. And I would like to know that, I have to say. I think on banks as well, it's, it's that thing that um, is quite, uh, is a characteristic of, of contemporary wheeler dealers in the absolute blatantness of it all. I mean, his book is, is you know, bananas. You know, you write this book for, called The Bad Boys of Brexit and talk about hiding in plain sight and all those kind of things. Um, so it, 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 it's that funny thing where, where I guess it's similar to, I suppose, the, the US election of the, in the same year, this absolute, um, you know, bruiser blatantness um, that can be very hard to get a handle on when people are basically saying, yeah, we're a bunch of, you know, geezers doing this, that and the other. Um, and, and the bar sinks lower and lower and lower. Um, and as do people's expectations and um, the account- so does accountability as well, I suppose. But I want to I talk about another character um, in your book who you've spoken to at length. You mentioned briefly there, Steve Bannon. Um and, and obviously, in, in I think it was in The Observer, The Guardian uh, last weekend, there was a, a piece about um, your interview with him in relation to Dominic Cummings and his opinions on Cummings. Um, tell me about your encounters with Steve Bannon, uh, what you gleaned from him in terms of his much 
uh, mulled over ideologies and intentions um, and how he intersects with uh, this topic that, that you've been writing an awful lot about? The first thing I guess I'll say when it comes to Steve Bannon um, was, you know, I interviewed him for the book and I must say I did it slightly with a heavy heart. I was, I was keen to speak to him and I was glad that he did talk to me for it. But also there's an element of him which is, I think there's a lot of self-mythologizing that goes on with Steve Bannon. Mm. And there's a desire for Steve Bannon to be seen as central to everything that happens. And I'm aware that by even, you know, by placing that piece in the Observer and even by writing about him, I do help contribute to that. So I'm going to hold up my hand up at the start and say I was and still possibly am slightly conflicted on that. Because on the one hand, it's, there's this element where you're giving oxygen and publicity to a man who loves publicity. But at the same time, I felt I kind of felt like the desire and the need to understand someone like this's role in things was over overrode that, and I felt like no one had really talked to him about British politics properly, and especially Brexit, because normally people want to talk to him about Trump, and so I felt like there was a real need to actually try and engage with him and to ask him what was going on, and also I'm, I, my book does touch on the kind of rise of the populist right across, across Europe. I look at things like Viktor Orban and in. Hungary and Matteo Salvini and, and especially the role of, of the Christian right in, in their rise and I wanted to talk to Steve Bannon about those sort of things too to try and get a handle on you know what's his thinking on these things what's his involvement been and it is really interesting because his in some ways the narrative of Steve Bannon is not that different than it was in 2016 when he ran the Trump campaign which is the, narr- the narrative of you know the post-financial crash the welfare state, the system, you know, the system that we, the globalized financial capital, the post-1990 settlement, basically, the post, the fall of the wall settlement has broken down. People are not, they're not getting what they wanted from, from government, from the state, from the world around them. And he's got a very easy analysis for that. His analysis really is that it's the, you know, it's, it's the move towards international capitalism and what we need to do is, is close the borders and bring back manufacturing jobs and kick out you know, anti-immigration and a return, a, a kind of interesting relationship with religion, I think, which I think is quite fascinating. I'm not sure actually how religious he is, but he kind of, as in terms of actual practicing religion, but I think he harks back and talks a lot about kind of the idea of Judeo-Christian culture, partly I think as, you know, it's it's a framing device to to avoid talking about race, you know, so it's kind of white without having to say white, but also I think there's something in there too where it's kind of, it's a kind of slightly authoritarian, it's it's also a way to talk about authoritarianism without being saying saying that either, so I think it plays a really useful uh, function for him, and I wanted to get a sense of what his role, what you know, what his relationship was with the Brexit campaign. And he has been very close. So I, I talked to him quite a lot about his relationship with Nigel Farage, which has been, seems to kind of date back from like kind of 2012, 13. Nigel Farage had been over in the States a lot and, and Bannon started coming to Britain. Bannon set up Breitbart London, which was run by a man called Raheem Kassam, who was a kind of acolyte of um, of Nigel Farage and he'd been really pushing the same message and for, for Bannon I do think he saw Brexit and Trump very similarly and it was interesting I not long after the Brexit referendum I went to America with my uh, my old friend Gavin Sheridan who's another Irish journalist and we, we drove around the states in a run up to the, Bre- uh, to the Trump campaign the Trump election victory 
just through the Midwest, I was reporting for various people, talking to voters. And I was struck how many people even referenced Brexit. And when I was talking to them, like, kind of, you guys did it over there in Britain with Brexit. You know, this is our Brexit. And also, it was quite easy to understand what was happening in America through an understanding of the Brexit referendum and the narratives that had worked. And I think it's fair to say that Barton, the narratives of Steve Bannon were what delivered Brexit. And, you know, whether it was intentional or not. And what I think is what's one of the reasons Britain's had that this long-running political paralysis is that initially, and as I write quite a lot in my book, the roots of Euroscepticism in Britain and the 30 years plus roots of Euroscepticism were around these issues around sovereignty and trade. They were the right of the Tory party, they were libertarian, they were deregulatory, often very Thatcherite, and they wanted a very different Britain. They wanted kind of what's called a kind of a Singapore on Thames. But the votes that delivered the Brexit referendum were not those votes. There was never a majority in Britain for that. The votes that delivered that the Brexit referendum were the populist votes. They were the votes of those who were, you know, who, who for whom take back control meant closing your borders. There were the votes of people who saw Nigel Farage with a picture of of immigrant of, of refugees with breaking point and said, "Yeah, that speaks to me." And I think. Britain still hasn't come to terms with that in some respects. The narrative of Britain and the narrative of the British government is still the global Britain narrative, despite the reality of the rhetoric that, that won them the, the vote. I think that's one of the reasons Britain still looks from the outside, such as like, like it doesn't really know what it is that it's supposed to be, journey it's supposed to be on, because it, doesn't, it can't really agree on itself. And I think Bannon's kind of thesis on that is that Johnson will just eventually kind of become even go full populist and become even more like kind of authoritarian minded I think and less about this global Britain rhetoric and I think we're seeing that in Britain you're seeing like a real clampdown I think on 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 media freedom and you're also seeing you know the government it's very hard to get information out of this government it's increasingly difficult they will actually actively lie to journalists which didn't happen before but you're also seeing a huge centralization of power in around Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson which is I think the kind of thing that that uh, Steve Bannon sees as the way forward for for a, a, a kind of populist leader in the tw- in the twenty twenties. Mm. Before you go, I want to kind of um, just follow on from that a little bit. Um, obviously, we're talking a lot about kind of going back and and uh, going back and looking at things and what they tell us about today and um, how it's worth holding on to those threads and pursuing them because. Obviously, uh, you know, the past is prologue uh, an awful lot of the time. And when we kind of um, see these different warning signs a couple of years ago, they can then manifest in, you know, contemporary politics. As somebody who does an awful lot of digging um, in this uh, genre, what do you think the almost the immediate future holds for Britain, given the extent of... um, perhaps it could be characterized as corruption adjacent uh, activities in elections there doesn't seem to be or i think there's two things happening there doesn't seem to be a, a massive willingness to face up to flaws in the system yet at the same time because the existential crisis is ongoing more broadly what i think is fascinating right now is that there's actually these conversations happening in the media for example, around um, Britain's history and the legacy of the quote-unquote empire and the impact of colonialism and actually excavating that now. So which is 
the first time really in my lifetime that I've kind of seen those conversations happening. What's your read on it? Um, do you think that these are kind of ghosts that may come back to haunt in, in, in a useful way? Or do you see something darker on the horizon? I think it's very, it's, it's very interesting. Because what you're seeing now in Britain, and what's quite clear is that it is a very divided policy. And almost the extent to which and the regularity at which the British government, particularly Boris Johnson, will talk about how united the country is. And Theresa May did the same thing. And how world-beating it is, is really a kind of sign of just how divided it is. If, if it wasn't divided, you wouldn't have to continue to say it was united. Yeah. It protests way too much. And on the one hand, I think I would totally agree that, like, you know, Britain has allowed itself uh, willingly to become a kind of a haven for all manner of kleptocracy and corruption, I think. Um, the Russia report reaction, I thought, was fascinating because the, the, for me, the big takeaway from the Russia report was that you had um, a parliamentary inquiry that the government had tried to squash for eight months. And they tried to, to rig the election for the for the head of the, the inquiry to, so they would basically never report, never release the report. That failed. The report came out. And what was in the report was really damning of British democracy. It was, you know, senior figures saying that there's, the mechanisms for British democracy are broken. The electoral laws are broken. Money is flowing in from all around the world. We don't ask where it comes from. We don't do any checks properly. We, Britain is, you know, the entire tax haven infrastructure of the world, which sucks so much money out, which is one of the most, if we could do, if I only thought of one thing that I'd like to change about the world, it would be to reform the tax system, which is still so broken and keeps so many people in poverty. Um, and this is, and that's what the Russia report was saying, plain as a light of day. The response to that from the government to being told that your democracy is broken and completely and utterly potentially a play to hostile forces was to deny it, to say, look, this isn't happening. Boris Johnson came out and talked about, you know, it's Islington Remainers, despite the fact he'd lived in, in Islington until very recently. Um, Chloe Smith, who is a cabinet office minister, which is the department in charge of this sort of thing, almost exactly as the Russia report was coming out, was telling a parliamentary, a parliamentary committee that electoral reform wasn't a priority for the government. There's a, there's a, a huge desire from government to just push this away. And I think the Russia report showed that. But at the same time, it can't fully push it away. It can't fully disavow it. In the same way that Britain can't fully disavow its past. Because it is a divided policy, it won't be that difficult at times for the other bit of the policy. Even if you've got 50 plus one behind you, there's going to be days when the plus one doesn't turn up. The other side will have a good day, which is how the Russia report came out in the first place. They managed to convince uh, a Tory on the committee all the uh, opposition MPs said to him, basically, we'll vote for you if you nominate yourself. And that meant they had a majority. So they won it and they put the report out. So this is, there's, is this kind of, um, similar, I think, in some ways to the States, because you have this conflicted history and this conflicted present and it's so divided, there will be moments in which the, you know, the kind of what are normally decided are in retreat will be able to kind of score a victory, whether that's opening up a conversation about the history of colonialism, you know, the toppling of, of the Statue of Colts and all of that sort of stuff, which did, I think, bring bring out a, a debate about race in Britain that I've not seen either and a, and a reflection on the past that I've not seen before from living here. So I, it's hard in some ways not to be gloomy. I do worry about the extent to which power has been entrenched in particular in Britain. 
But if you look at polling, Britain actually isn't as divided as America, say. Like the Dominic Cummings affair where he wandered, he drove up to Durham and pretended everything, and the whole government pretended that was fine. That didn't fall, fall fully on party lines. It wasn't like a Trump thing in America where that 40% of the population who are in the tank for Trump no matter what. That doesn't exist in Britain. Vast swathes of population are really angry about that, including lots of conservative voters. So there is still, Britain I don't think is, it's not reached that tipping point yet where it's gone so far down the rabbit hole that like it's it's beyond it's beyond help so i i don't have a clear answer to it but i find lots of reasons to be gloomy but some reasons to be optimistic as well peter that's a very very fair uh, and fair and balanced i would say answer um thank you very much for that the book is called democracy for sale dark money and dirty politics always really great to chat to you peter keep up the fantastic work uh, it's been fascinating and well done um on another great great piece of work fair play una thanks a million absolutely love appearing on the show anytime always happy to have a chat nice one Whatever the assignment, timing is the prime consideration to meet the deadlines of the various editions. If there are any men in the room watching this programme, they might like to get up now and leave, because the newspapers this week have talked a lot about knickers. Flash, exclusive, here's front page news. You tell me what you know, and I'll confirm. I'll keep you in the right direction if I can, but that's all. Just follow the money. A journalist? Now what is that? That's not the full story now. This is Byline.